Doubt. We're going to talk for two weeks about doubt. We'll begin today with an honest look at doubt, and I'd love for you to grab that sermon cart that was handed to you. The top of it, I'm sorry for those of you who are grammarians, it should be an an honest look at doubt and not a honest look at doubt. Today we're going to take an honest look at doubt, and next week we're going to talk specifically about how to address doubt, including some intellectual arguments, and I, I hope that you will be here. But today we're going to lay the foundation for that. Some of you are old enough to remember George Carlin. He was a famous comedian and social critic and skeptic in the 60s and 70s. And George Carlin once said this, You tell people there's an invisible man in the sky who created the universe, and a vast majority will believe you. Tell them the paint is wet, and they have to touch it to be sure. So now you and I can smile about that until we realize, wait, we're the objects of that joke. Doubt. No matter who you are or how secure your faith is, it's possible, it's almost inevitable that doubt will shake it at times. I mean, let's be honest, what we believe is hard to swallow. Sometimes our faith is challenged because of intellectual argument. There are intellectual constraints. There are intellectual doubts. We hear something and, yeah, that just doesn't make sense. I have been reading a biography of Benjamin Franklin, the American founding father, and Franklin was a famous deist, and some of you know that deism is the belief that there's a God in heaven somewhere, and perhaps he created the universe, but if, and assuming he did, he created it and let it go, and he stands up there and observes and does not interact with us at all. He moved, obviously, quite a distance from his parents' Christian faith. In Franklin's autobiography, he says this, listen, My parents had early given me religious impressions and brought me through my childhood piously in the dissenting way. Dissenting way is an old school way of saying puritanism, basically. But I was scarce 15 when after doubting by turns of several points as I found them disputed in different books I read, I began to doubt Revelation itself. In other words, Franklin was saying, I'm just not sure the Bible, I don't get it, and I, I don't really believe it. Some books against deism fell into my hands. They were said to be the substance of sermons preached at Boyle's lectures. It happened that they wrought an effect on me quite contrary to what was intended by them. For the arguments of the deists, which were quoted to be refuted, appeared to me much stronger than the refutations. In short, I soon became a deist. Sometimes our doubts are the result of intellectual argument, intellectual concern, intellectual misgivings. Sometimes our faith is challenged because of a personal crisis. Last week, a young man named Ryan died. He was from Ashburn. He played uh, football and baseball at Broad Run High School. He was a sophomore at West Virginia University in 2009 when he got into a verbal altercation with a couple of other young men over the World Series. It ended in blows. One guy punched Ryan. The other one kicked him in the head several times, and Ryan never recovered from the brain trauma. For 10 years, his family put their life on hold to care for Ryan. Their home was turned into a clinic. Ryan's father quit his job to care for him full time. And he died last Saturday. How does faith for Ryan's family remain untested? I can't imagine such personal crisis not producing torrential doubt. And sometimes faith is challenged because of just overwhelming emotional onslaught. That's not necessarily personal crisis. Think of the latest 
gun violence incident or the latest natural disaster or the latest person who dies tragically and far too young. Why God? How could you even be there and these things happen? Dealing with faith is our business. But we can't deal with faith honestly without dealing with doubt honestly. So for the next two weeks, we're going to look at doubt. Uh, Today, we're going to take an honest look at the contours of doubt. What is it and, and what is it not? And then next week, as I said, we're going to talk about how to respond to doubt. Again, I'm going to give some intellectual arguments for believing in God, but that's not all that we're going to do. If you're struggling with doubt, please don't miss next week. Actually, I'm going to end our time today by taking a first step in that direction and responding to doubt. And we'll pick up next week where we leave off today. So today we're going to make five don't miss this points about doubt. And I've given you a scorecard. I'm not expecting you to take these home and frame them, but this just helps all of us remember. For those of you who like to keep score at home, I want you to fill in the blanks as we go through this. Uh, Number one, don't miss this point is doubt is common. Doubt's common. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. And what I want you to see here is the doubt of John the Baptist, who's one of the most epic figures in the scripture. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. We're going to circle back to the story, by the way, at the very end of what we say today. So Matthew 11, 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison, remember that, about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we still look for another? Are, are you the deal? What's up? According to research, two out of three Christians admit to experiencing serious doubt. And I wonder if the third one isn't stretching the truth. More than, according to research, more than one out of four Christ followers are experiencing doubt right now. So look around the room. One out of four of us are experiencing doubt right now. Now, the Bible does talk about a gift of faith in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And I know that a few of you don't experience seasons of doubt in your life. You watch your loved ones die, and you're thankful for heaven. You see some Discovery Channel special on all the contradictions in the Bible, and it just makes your faith grow stronger. You should thank God, because that's a gift And most of us don't live in that same place. That means for most of you, if you doubt, you're in good company. Doubt is common. King David doubted, one of the heroes of the Old Testament. This is what's behind his cries of, how long in the Psalms? My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Deliver me. No one remembers you when you're dead. Psalms 6, 3, and 4. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Psalm 13, 1. The prophet Jeremiah doubted. Oh Lord, you deceived me. You tricked me and I was deceived. You overpowered me. Of course you prevailed. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought news to my father who made him glad saying a child is born to you. I wish I'd never been born. Jeremiah 27 and 14 and 15. Jeremiah doubted. 
John the Baptist, as we saw, doubted. And Jesus frequently rebuked the disciples for their lack of faith. In fact, Thomas is so well known for doubting the resurrection of Jesus, he's called often Doubting Thomas. James Snowden was a theology professor from the early 20th century, and he wrote several articles on the place and nature of doubt that have been very influential. Actually, I discovered in the last couple of weeks, doubt is a growing research field among psychologists at various universities around the country. And many of those studies still reference and quote from uh, Dr. Snowden's work. I read one lengthy study from about 10 years ago conducted by a professor at the University of Michigan whose whole aim was to test the contentions that Dr. Snowden made in an article he wrote called The Place of Doubt in Religious Belief. So, anyway, one of uh, Snowden's most famous quotes, he said, quote, it would be a poor and pitiful God that we could see through. In other words, God is so far removed from us in character, in how he operates, and in his nature that we can never fully understand him. He goes on, he says this, all of our religious thinking is margined and mingled with mystery, so how could we not expect doubts to emerge? Doubt is common. Don't miss this point number two. Doubt is not reserved for religious belief. Don't snooze on that one. I know as you hear me talk about this and explain what I mean by that, you're going to think, yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe in your head you understand this, but I'll guarantee you many of you are very well educated. We live in a very well educated part of American culture, and your education has trained you to disagree with this, and I'll explain why. Professor Snowden again said it like this, quote, doubt attends all of our knowledge and is inherent in the constitution of the human mind. Did you know that Einstein's mathematics pointed from the very beginning of his analysis that led to the general theory of relativity, Einstein's mathematics pointed to something like black holes. And yet, throughout his life, Einstein never believed in black holes. He didn't believe his own math. He thought there had to be some other explanation. We sometimes allow ourselves the impression that real stuff in this category is observable and it's just factual. But our religious beliefs over here in this category, well, that's different. Over here is the category of fact and over here is the category of faith and this is where doubt exists. But there are economists and physicists and biologists and psychologists and geologists, politicians and soldiers and managers and plumbers and electricians and technicians of all kind who doubt one another's conclusions every day. In fact, there's not a single category of knowledge in which the practitioners themselves don't doubt their own conclusions. Constantly. There, quite simply, is not a kind of knowledge which is not subject to doubt. Doubt is not reserved for religious belief. Now, that doesn't erase doubt. Of course. It doesn't explain it all. It doesn't make it all go away. It doesn't prove our doubts wrong. That's just simply a statement of fact. And that should put our faith questioning into right perspective. Religious faith is not somehow weaker or less reasonable because it's subject to doubt. Everything is subject to doubt. Don't miss this point number three. The presence of doubt in you does not mean that you don't have faith. 
The presence of doubt in you does not mean that you don't have faith. Once again, David, Jeremiah, Thomas, John the Baptist, when you doubt, you're in good company. Some of you know the biographies of Jesus, and you know the story in Mark chapter 5. There's a story in Mark chapter 5 where a very desperate father comes to Jesus with his very sick daughter, and he asks Jesus to heal her, and so it would be a dramatic healing. And I want you to hear what he says. the, The father said to Jesus, this is Mark's account, father said to Jesus, if you can do anything, then have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Listen to this response. This is where some of us live. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay, this is hardly airtight faith, right? And yet, Jesus dramatically healed this young girl. I want to repeat. Wimpy faith plus faith filled with doubt plus desperate father plus very sick girl equals dramatic healing. That's not how we thought that equation would work out. By the way, the word doubt I looked at a three-and-a-half-minute TED Talk thing this week, the derivation of the word doubt. This is just interesting, stupid, but interesting. This is just for your information so you can go out and tell somebody on Tuesday and they won't care. Why is there a B in the word doubt? D-O-U-B-T. What's up, what's up with the B? Well, it comes from the Latin root dubitare. I hope you're all thoroughly impressed. And dubitare means doubt, and it also carries with it the idea of two. That got translated into English eventually as dut, D-O-U-T. And it was that way for a couple of centuries. And you may see that somewhere written in Old English. And somewhere along the way, and English historians don't know how or why, they started inserting a B again. D-O-U-B-T. And English scholars are convinced that they inserted the B to tie it back to its Latin root of dubiter and also to signify the underlying meaning of it. Did you know there are only two words in English that begin D-O-U-B, doubt and double. And both of them have duality, two things in operation. To doubt basically means to be in two minds. It means to think two different things. So you cannot doubt what you don't, at least in part, believe. You're in two minds. You're thinking two things. The presence of doubt does not mean that you don't have faith. Number four, don't miss this thought for today. Doubt is dangerous. Why don't you put an exclamation point at the end of that one on your sermon card? The presence of doubt doesn't mean that you don't have faith. And when you doubt, you're in good company because it's very common. You're in good company, but you're not in a good place. Doubt is dangerous. I like the way Dr. Snowden put it. He said, quote, doubt is a sign of thought. And it's better than unthinking stagnation. But it's weakness and not strength. It may be good as a temporary state and a step toward clearer light, but not as a finality. Positive belief is the rightful state of mind, end quote. 
It's interesting that Dr. Snowden says that doubt may be good as a temporary state and a step toward clearer light. As I said, the field of psychological research on doubt is very young, but it's exploding. And I read a few studies this week about doubt. There are two very large long-term studies that are quoted by lots of other studies because their conclusions have held up to further research. One of them was conducted in 1975. One of them was conducted in 1991. Both studies concluded, interestingly, that cognitive development is actually driven by uncertainty and doubt. That means it's good for our thinking and deciding capacities to doubt what we believe. But these same studies suggested that long-term doubt is bad for our sense of well-being. It contributes to anxiety and depression, among other things. It literally makes us feel worse about ourselves. So doubt is not a healthy final destination. It's dangerous. The prophet James put it like this. And we need to pay attention to this one. So let's go old school. I want you to stand up with me. And we're going to read together James 1, 5 through 8. And let's hear James's very sober warning about the dangers of doubt. Let's go. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable. You may be seated. I'm not offering this to make us feel guilty or to add anxiety on the top of your doubt. But I am offering it as a necessary warning. Doubt is dangerous. The great theologian and reformer Martin Luther offers an important warning about doubt. And I put this on the screen too. I want you to see this paragraph. This is epic. Luther said this, There is no way in which we can show greater contempt for a man than to regard him as false and wicked and to be suspicious of him, as we do when we do not trust him. What greater rebellion against God, what greater wickedness, what greater contempt for God is there than not believing his promise? For what is this but to make God a liar or to doubt that he is truthful? That is, to ascribe truthfulness to oneself, but lying and vanity to God. So, how can we acknowledge that doubt is common, even among the saints of God, plus acknowledge that doubt doesn't mean that you don't have faith, and still say that doubt is dangerous? What does that mean? How does that work? I met someone who's part of our church for coffee this week, and a young man, and we had a great conversation, and so I'm sure he's we're going for coffee, and he's thinking, what in the world am I going to say to that old guy, Pastor Ed? And we sit down, and I say, so what's up? Tell me your story. Well, you know, where did you grow up? So I start asking him questions, and then he starts to flow. And he's telling me his story. And turns out that a pretty epic part of his story is he had a sister who died a couple of years ago. Beautiful, young not married yet, dynamic, lots of friends. You know, 2,000 people came to her funeral. Really surprising 
caught them off guard, not ready for this. And I couldn't remember the 9 o'clock service, and I still can't remember. He used this phrase that was so cool, but I don't remember what it was. But his family was in the hospital while she was dying. And again, he said it better than this, but I mean, they just did some work. They were in there as a family praying. And he thought, you know, he said, I bet a ton of people were converted during when they just came into the hospital just listening to us. They're singing worship songs and, and praying. And, and their, her mom was in the room almost 24 hours a day for three or four days, just reading scripture over her just beseeching God to heal her and believing it. And at a certain point, doctors keep coming in, giving them worse and worse news, and she's gone. We need to take her off life support. No, we're believing God for healing, and they would continue to pray and sing, and she died. And this young man's brother has stepped away from his faith. So imagine the brother at the beginning of that journey away from faith, watching his faith slip away. I mean, we can relate. Why did this happen? What does this mean? If God is real, why doesn't he answer prayer? said he would. We did this prescription. Where are you, God? Again, let's acknowledge that thinking is not necessarily cancerous. It's certainly understandable. It may be how many of us would have responded. It may even be healthy eventually. But while this is important, while it's not necessarily cancerous, those thoughts do suggest that the brother had a spiritual cold. That kind of thinking tells us that there's a virus in the system, right? And coals weaken us. They don't threaten our lives, but they weaken us. That is, they don't threaten our lives unless we don't give our body time to heal or unless our system is so weakened that we can't respond to the cold. Then a cold can become a debilitating respiratory condition that literally threatens our lives. Doubt is dangerous. Doubt is not cancer, but it's a cold. And the younger we are in the faith, or the more vulnerable and weaker we are because of repeated attacks, the more dangerous it is. And that brings us to, don't miss this point number five. And if you miss everything else, don't miss point number five. Point number five is, doubt must be addressed. Now, Again, this is next week's sermon, and I really don't want you to miss it, but I'm going to give you initial thoughts here, just a few thoughts. I'm going to end today where we're going to start next week with what I believe is the first critical step in us addressing our doubts. Of course, we can ignore our doubts. Of course, we can deny them or suppress them. Of course, we can ultimately just surrender. Did you know that 46% of people who experience doubt quit going to church? I honestly, I'm not going to speak as a religious guy now. I'm going to speak as emotional and spiritual expert guy. I'm not, but imagine. That's not healthy. That's not a good response. I'll make an allowance. 
If you have dealt with your doubt and you've come to the conclusion, I just can't believe anymore, then it's the right response for you to not go to church and not, not sing these songs. I need you to soften my heart. Give me faith. You can't sing that. But if you're just surrendering, if you're just denying and you're fatigued, that's not the right way to go. Doubt must be addressed. So I need to talk to the faithful for just a minute here as we wrap up. I'm going to suggest the first step is to pray for spiritual sight. And I want you to write that in at the bottom in your own little note. Pray for spiritual sight. That is the beginning of how we deal with doubt, and let me explain it. I'm going to go back to Matthew 11. We said we were going to circle back at the end. Here we are. I want you to hear this story again. Matthew 11, and now we're going to go through verses 1 through 6. And what I want you to hear is how Jesus responded to John's doubt. Okay. When Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Those of you who know the story, you know that John was the guy who was preaching and hundreds of people, it seems like, hundreds of people from Jerusalem and surrounding areas were coming out of John, the desert region, making a trek out there. Hear John preach. They want to be baptized. They're all in. John's baptizing people in mass. He's just seeing God do great things, but it doesn't seem like, you know, that God is really shaking the nation yet. And then, and then he sees Jesus. And Jesus comes over the hill, and John sees him come down. John says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John completely gets it. He gets it that Jesus is a brand new thing. God is doing a brand new thing on the earth through him. And this is amazing. The kingdom of God, God's rule, God's control, God being God, and taking over the universe is happening. Yay! Don't you guys see this? Strike up the band. Awesome. How did he end up in prison? <laughs> What is going on? I thought the kingdom was coming. Why is this prison not being exploded? Where are you? Why is my sister not waking up and shouting, go away doctors, I don't need this thing? Why is that brain not correcting itself and that young boy in that bed in Ashburn? What? And Jesus answers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus does not rebuke John how dare you ask that question, John? You saw, you, you know. Do you know what you're doing to your disciples and mine? Do you know the seeds of doubt that you're sowing in lesser minds? What are you thinking? Don't be so selfish, John. 
He doesn't rebuke John at all. He also doesn't answer his question. He doesn't tell him why he's in prison. He doesn't make it all better. I wish I could tell you why he didn't answer his question. I said to the 9 o'clock service, if I could tell you, you would have to pay me a lot more money and we would be doing more business here. I can't tell you. It may be because the answers are just too big for us. That's what religious people like me often say, and it may be true. We don't know why. We know that Jesus doesn't answer him. He did not tell him what his heart was really screaming about. But what he does do is he says, John, I want you to see. With spiritual eyes, I want you to see. He essentially quotes, and you may not know this one, but he essentially quotes from the prophet Isaiah. It's not really a quote, it's a paraphrase of the prophet Isaiah. The Psalms and Isaiah were the most popular books. and I mean, that was, you know, those were like the big hits in this time. And contemporary with Jesus, they would go into the synagogue when they would do their favorite readings. It was always from the Psalm and Isaiah. And those two books were often quoted in the New Testament as well by the guys who wrote the biographies of Jesus and the accounts after the biographies of Jesus. And one of the most famous passages, I mean, this was, this was like a greatest hits for years. One of the most famous passages in Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 61. And Isaiah chapter 61 is a passage of promise. Great stuff is coming. Isaiah calls it the favorable year of the Lord. Favorable year of the Lord is coming when blind people will see and lame people will walk and the poor and the prisoners will have the good news preached to them. And Jesus' response to John is, John, open your eyes. The favorable year of the Lord is upon us. It's not exactly what you expected, John, but it's here. And it's happening. And I'm it. So, step number one is spiritual sight. We pray for spiritual sight. I heard a great analogy for this. We'll wrap it up with this. I heard a great analogy for this last week. John Piper's pastor, and he's talking about this spiritual sight. And he, the illustration he uses, I thought it was perfect. He talked about his wife. So I'll talk about mine. I'll use Piper's illustration. Some of you don't know Diane. If you're visiting, you don't know her, but she's incredibly sweet. She's drop-dead sexy. Anyway, I know Diane. I've known her for years, and I love her. I know her character. I know what she's like. I know Diane. A couple weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I, I went down to South Carolina for three days to visit an aunt. I have an, an aunt who's older. She's in the late 90s, and she's dying. This will probably be the last time that I, I see her, and, and I just wanted to, you know... My dad died when I was very young, and she and her husband were really important in our family. So I wanted to go say goodbye to Aunt Pep. And my sisters and I met down in South Carolina to see my aunt, and she's still sharp and hilarious and sarcastic. And my sisters walk in, and my aunt looks at them and says, oh, look like the cat drug in or something. And then I walk behind them, and I peek around, and I say, hey, Aunt Pep. She said, Lord, I must be dying. Anyway, <laughs> so... I'm visiting at Pep, and I'm, I'm there for a couple of days. I'm spending a night in a hotel, and I want you to imagine that one of you calls me up. Ed, I think Diane's having an affair. I saw her going to lunch with someone, and I think she's having an affair. And my response would be something like, 
I think you're an idiot. And I would hang up the phone and sleep perfectly. Because I know Diane. I know Jesus. I've read all his stories many times. I've experienced him. I'm ticked off that I don't experience him more, but I've experienced him. I've seen him do incredible things. I know Jesus. And so I don't have to doubt him. I pray for spiritual sight. That's why Paul, when he's writing the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays for the Ephesians in his letter. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. You would see him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. We would see you. Lord, I especially pray for those of us this morning who are struggling with doubt from whatever set of circumstances. Speak, still our hearts and help us to address it honestly, to step in. And Lord, we so want you to answer all of our questions. It kind of ticks us off at times that you don't. But I think, Father, of Peter's words to Jesus when crowds left him and he looked at the disciples and said, will you two leave me? And Peter said, no, Lord, where else will we go? Because you have the words of eternal life. So that's our declaration this morning. I remember there were times, Lord, when your first students ask you to increase their faith or give them faith, and that's our prayer this morning, that you would give us faith. Like James speaks about, that we could ask for wisdom and you'd give it, because we don't doubt. Hear us and speak to the soft places in our hearts. Let's stand together.
Let's go in peace. Thanks for coming.